0: Welcome to the Fear and Greed Daily Interview, I'm Sean Aylmer. More than half of all Australians would apparently consider an electric vehicle for the next car. So why then aren't we seeing that reflected in sales figures? There are still a lot of barriers to entry for Australian drivers, but maybe the election of a new government will see some of those barriers come down. Tom White is the new energy vehicle specialist at Cars Guide and the author of the EV Guide Report. It's an incredible snapshot of where Australia stands when it comes to electric vehicles. Tom, welcome to Fear and Greed. Hi, how are you going? So last year, EVs accounted for less than 2% of car purchases in Australia. I think you put it at 1.6%. Can we go through some of the main reasons why Australians aren't buying them? Let's start with charging infrastructure. Is there not enough around? Charging
1: infrastructure is a big problem in Australia. Uh, In the report, we actually had to call up every charge provider. So that's sort of your NRMA, your Tritium, your Tesla, and find out exactly how many charges they have. Because right now, the only database of that is a crowdsourced one called PlugShare. It's it's an app that EV drivers use to find their nearest charger. But because it's crowdsourced, it's really hard to get an accurate number from it. So we actually had to do this original research to call everyone up and figure out where all the charges are and how many there are. And we found the most interesting thing about that was the number of charges are a function of population in in the states so there are some states like New South Wales, for example, which actually have quite a few charges, and some states like the NT, for example, which only has seven at the time that we published the report. So I think it is a big issue. And one thing that we've come across in our sort of daily reviewing and analysing of electric vehicles at Cars Guide is there are some gaps in the network, even in New South Wales, and there are some places where if a charger, for example, is out of service for whatever reason, then there's a significant portion of electric vehicles on the market which won't actually make it to the next one after that. So, it's a really interesting
0: and developing space and we're hoping to see that evolve. Okay. So, what about recharging speed? How long does does it actually take to recharge a car?
1: I presume it varies, does it? It does. It depends on the car and it depends on the infrastructure as well. And it's something that I think a lot of buyers are intimidated by the level of information required to understand this, but yeah. a really simple way to look at it is there are three levels of charging. And so you've got your level one charging, and that covers everything from plugging it into a wall socket in your garage at home to a slow public charger at, say, a public charging location, which might be at yep. uh,
0: a Westfield, for example. or yeah, My local mall has a bunch of charging stations there, which people always park into and go and do their shopping while it's charging. Exactly. And, and so
1: that level one charging covers that area. That's up to 7.2 kilowatts. So if you've got a long range EV, for example, which can travel 400, 500 kilometers, usually the batteries are in the realm of 72 kilowatts or that kind of region so if you do the maths it takes about 10 hours to charge your car that way your next one up is level two again that's probably not found at home you'd need to install some pretty heavy duty uh, electrics at home to do that but it's more in your public locations uses the same set of plugs but it will cover everything from 7.2 kilowatts up to 22 kilowatts and so you can start to see those charging times come way down And a good way I I like to talk about level two charging is thinking about how many kilometers it might add per hour. So if you were to go to the gym or, or do your grocery shop, for example, and you plug into a level two charger, you might get between 100 and 150 kilometers of range. And that's pretty convenient. And then up the top end, you've got your level three, which is your DC fast charging. And those are the big expensive ones that you see at prime locations they'll cover everything from 50 kilowatts to 350 kilowatts at the top end. Oh, wow. They require a lot of expense to install, which is why you don't see many of them. And they require certain conditions to be met in the environment and such so that they don't create hazards. But those charges are where you start to see charge times of 15 minutes uh, for particular vehicles.
0: Okay, so recharging
1: speed is still a barrier to entry for a lot of people? I'd say so, definitely. I, I think Especially people who say, Oh, I need a longer range EV, but then they look at the charging time when they're charging it up at home, might be, you know, 15 hours. And they're going, Oh, yeah. well, I don't want to, I don't wanna have to think about that, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Look, the, the third one, of course, is cost of vehicles. Now, I was reading something recently, which was arguing, it was a European piece, which was arguing that the tipping point at which an EV is as affordable as a traditional vehicle, when you take into account current gas prices, when you take into account retail value, all that sort of thing, depreciation, it's not that far away. Is that correct? (laughs) Optimistic, perhaps. Optimistic. (laughs) That depends on um,
1: your requirements from the vehicle. You know, as your battery size goes up, so too does your price. And, you know, with fuel fuel prices fluctuating, it can be a lot or it can be uh, not as much. So I think we're a way off from being price parity yep. between an equivalent combustion car and an electric car and I think that right now that's a, that's a bit of a problem like prices do need to come down because as it says in the report uh, 87% of buyers flag that as their main problem like they would they yeah. they've got the money to buy a car and they go out and they see that they can't actually afford even the most basic electric cars. Yeah. And some of our internal research recently showed that as well, like the average budget for an uh, electric car buyer is significantly higher than it is for a combustion car buyer. And yet still they're turning around at dealerships because the prices are are quite high. So it's something that will come down over time, but where that parity is, it's really hard to say. Stay with me, Tom. We'll be back in a minute.
0: My guest today is Tom White, the new energy vehicle specialist at Cars Guide. Now, you're talking about EVs generically, though you're suggesting there's all different types. I mean, mm-hmm. we're looking at and there's pure EV, there's hybrid plug in hybrid electric vehicle, which apparently is PHEV, hydrogen fuel cell electric vehicles. What's the difference between all these? Yeah, that's actually a great question and something that I think trips consumers
1: up a lot as well, especially because the marketing around some of these EV levels can be quite confusing. Manufacturers might, for example, pitch a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle as an EV variant of another a combustion car, which can be quite confusing. So essentially, your pure EV has no engine. That's purely powered by battery and runs using an electric motor. Right. right. Then you've got your hybrid, which can come in multiple forms, which is a whole thing in and of itself, but essentially a hybrid has a a motor and an electric component. So it'll have a petrol engine and a way to drive the wheels using electrification as well. Right. And that's kind of your Toyota hybrids. That's what people generally understand that technology to be. So a blend of the two technologies, but doesn't require a plug to charge up. It will just do that using the excess power from braking or from the engine idling then you've got your plug-in hybrid electric vehicle and that's where you sort of draw the line okay now we need a plug but plug-in hybrids also have an engine as well so you're able to drive it's usually between 30 and 100 kilometers under purely electric power And then you've got the combustion engine as well, which will take you even further. So those vehicles actually have quite a long range. And for, I think some buyers, in Australia actually make quite a bit of sense because you can, if you travel using a purely hybrid mode, because they have such big batteries, you can actually get the 1200, 1500 Ks between tanks, which is is pretty, pretty good, really. Yeah. Yeah. And then the final one, as you mentioned, there is the hydrogen fuel cell. This one's a, a bit different. Essentially... For a user experience, they they drive like an electric vehicle because it just uses a hydrogen fuel cell, which is like a filter, if you will, sends air and hydrogen through and creates energy between them, and that then provides power to drive the electric motor. And so essentially, they drive like an electric vehicle. There's no difference from behind the wheel, but you do need to fill it up with hydrogen, which is a really big problem because it's expensive infrastructure to install. But the advantage is they have really, really
0: long ranges. Yeah. Okay. So putting all that together, why don't we have more EVs in Australia? Is it because of the charging infrastructure, the recharging speed, the cost of vehicles, confusion over which type of vehicle you want? Is it because some of the overseas manufacturers just aren't operating in Australia? Lucid, Rivian, those things which aren't actually in Australia. What, what is it or is it a combination of everything? I think you're right
1: there. I think it is a combination of everything. With the lack of incentives in Australia and our geographical challenges, so you know the distances between our major centres, it's not as appealing to bring EVs to our market and only taking up 2% of the market as a result is a challenge for manufacturers to justify bringing electric vehicles here. Another big one we're seeing at the moment is... Uh, the fact that there's ongoing parts shortages and that particularly affects EVs because they they have so many computers in them and uh, so mm. many uh, electronic parts which cross over with other tech sectors so that they they, ha- they have to make choices about which markets to bring their EVs to demand globally is really high so you know ford for example will will have to make a choice about what markets they'll send their most popular EVs to because they can literally only build enough to meet barely meet demand in in most markets. And usually because we're right-hand drive instead of left-hand drive, most of the world is left-hand drive. We miss out on models because of that. And also because we're on the other side of the world, it makes uh, shipping expensive and therefore cars expensive. So that's having an effect as well. But it's also the fact that, yes, as you said, some manufacturers like Rivian and, and, and Lucid and those emerging new age manufacturers like your Teslas, are uh, having trouble leaving their home markets for a combination of those reasons.
0: Okay, so what's the role government's got to play here, particularly when you look overseas and you look at the Joe Biden administration insisting that uh, government cars be EVs by, I think it's a decade's time or thereabouts. I think mid 2030s in Europe, at least half the cars sold have to be EVs. I'm probably getting all this data wrong, Tom, but what what role does government have? No, you're in the ballpark for that. There there are some rather aggressive incentives
1: going on elsewhere in the world, and a lot of that is government driven, and the government does have a big role to play, especially we've seen overseas with some really successful policies. Whether or not that includes like heavy subsidies like we see in places like Norway, that might not necessarily even be the case. You mentioned their government fleets. That can be really important because when we're talking about low cost electric vehicles, one of the lowest cost electric vehicles is a second-hand one. And how you stimulate that market is you fill government fleets with EVs because those eventually then change hands and go on to a private owner. So that's actually a really positive move the government can take. It needs the vehicles anyway. It's got the money to buy them. Why not fill your fleets with those EVs where they're actually really well suited to a lot of government tasks as well, whether it's ferrying people around cities or or acting as council vehicles as well. That's a really positive step governments can take. Subsidies are good, but removal of taxes seems to be the preferred method in Australia. Obviously, we've seen quite a few states now introduce that sort of $3,000 or $3,500 rebate. Yeah, WA being one of the most recent ones, with the kind of unfortunate part of that being they still want to tax them. So you get $3,500 rebate, and then you have to pay almost that in stamp duty just to have the vehicle back. So really, it's a break-even equation. But I think there can be more done for infrastructure as well, because that's expensive to install. And for private industry, this early on in the rollout of electric vehicles in Australia, it might not be profitable to put charges in certain places, but you need them so that people see them and say, I can charge my electric vehicle there, I'm going to buy one. So that the government needs to help out doing that, and and to the, to even the previous government's credit, they have been doing that with the uh, future fuels and arena funding, which has rolled out quite a few charges along the east coast. And the Labor government's policy uh, is to double that fund, so uh, and install quite a few more charges.
0: Okay, final question, Tom. Where will we be in a decade's time in the EV market in Australia? Where we've been a decade's
1: time. That's really interesting. I, I think EVs will make up a significant proportion of uh, sales mix. And I think you'll see the introduction of hydrogen, particularly at uh, commercial vehicle level, because that's where that technology makes the most sense. Yep. Heavy trucks, that sort of thing. Yeah, that's right. And that's because of the lightness of that drivetrain technology. Uh, it makes it so truck drivers can have a long range and carry a big load. So I think we'll see an, an evolution of that, particularly just because of our you know long geography between cities, you, you need an yeah. alternate method to do that. And that, that will trickle down to passenger vehicles as well. As these supply issues start to sort themselves out. It means we'll see a lot more models become available to our market. And uh, with battery technology evolving the way it is, the price will come down. How much? I can't tell you, but it, it will eventually come down. And all of that will help create a a more stable marketplace for EVs in Australia and one
0: in which people will be keen to hop out and buy their first EV. Hope so. Tom, thank you for talking to Fear and Greed. No problem. Thank you. That was Tom White, the new energy vehicle specialist at Cars Guide. This is the Fear and Greed Daily Interview. Join us every morning for the full episode of Fear and Greed, Australia's most popular business podcast. I'm Sean Aylmer. Enjoy your day.